With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 337. It's titled, Why in the World Do We Own Bonds? I've been a longtime client of Basecamp, the web application company co-founded by Jason Fried and David Heinmeier Hansen. I have used their simple note-taking platform, Backpack, since 2005. We use their project management platform, Basecamp. I recently switched my personal email to their premium email service, Hey. Not only do I admire and use Basecamp's products, but their corporate ethos has inspired me for years and has influenced how I run money for the rest of us. Freed and Hansen shared much of their philosophy of work and business in their books, Rework, and It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. In a recent blog post, Jason Freed discussed one of the core tenets of Basecamp. They work in six-week increments. They don't have any big plans beyond that. That's their project timeline. He writes, we have some big picture directional ideas of where we may be headed, like a sailor on an exploratory expedition aiming for a distant shore, but we're tacking with the prevailing winds and our whims until we eventually get somewhere good. He points out that the big advantage of figuring out as they go is they can adjust, they can adapt, they can make adjustments daily and it helps them avoid big mistakes. And they're not majorly entrenched in one idea. The time window is only six weeks. I have a similar approach in terms of how I run money for the rest of us. I don't have any revenue goals, no profit goals. My emphasis is simply consistently create value-added content on money, investing, and the economy, Content that helps individuals feel more confident about their investing without needing to be an expert. Investing is the same way. We can adjust as we go along and not become majorly entrenched in one view of the world. My investment process is to understand what current conditions are. What are economic trends, valuations, market internals, such as the level of fear and greed? I want to understand what the drivers of returns are. What's the current yield? What's a reasonable assumption for income growth? And what are investors paying for that income stream? I don't know where markets are going to go this year. I'm just willing to adapt as conditions change and opportunities arise. It's an asset garden approach. Many different types of assets. Fried points out that If something goes wrong because their time horizon is only six weeks, they have limited downside on any one project. By holding a diversified mix of assets and not overly weighting any particular area, we can also protect and limit our downside. Last July, in an episode on 
Investing is not knowing. I quoted the ancient Chinese philosopher Zhuangzi, who wrote, not knowing is knowing, and knowing is not knowing. There is a lot we do not know about what's going on in the investment markets. And we can be comfortable with that and invest accordingly. This year, there has been a lot of hoopla that interest rates have risen and bond funds have fallen. If we look at the return of the Vanguard Total Bond Market Index Fund, it has lost 3.7% year-to-date. It's not a particularly compelling fund, in my opinion, because its yield is only 1.4%, yet its duration, its interest rate sensitivity, is 6.6 years. I have about 10% of my net worth in bonds in five different bond funds. The worst performing one the Dodge and Cox Income Fund is down 2.6%. I have another actively managed bond fund that's down 1.4%. I have a closed-end bond fund that's up 6.7%. Another closed-end fund that's up 0.4%. And an interest rate hedged ETF that's up 0.4%. The increase in interest rates hasn't really impacted me that much. Different funds have performed differently in that environment. That's what diversification is. I have assets that have done very poorly this year. Gold is down 10%. And others that have done extremely well. Small cap value stocks up 15% or more. This has been my approach to investing for decades. To understand what is going on, make adjustments as opportunities and risks arise, and not go all in with one particular idea. Now, I want to share three views on interest rates that were all very well written. One makes the argument for why interest rates might rise a little more from here, but won't jump significantly. Another view is that interest rates will rise a bunch from these levels, and we shouldn't hold really any U.S. dollar-denominated bonds. And then there's a view that interest rates will fall. Here's the first one that interest rates will rise a little more from here. This is from Capital Economics. They are a leading independent economic research firm that I have used since 2009. They have over 60 economists on their staff. They've won awards for their forecasting ability. They say that their economic philosophy is broad-based and pragmatic, that the worst research is often based on dogma, entrenched views, or black box computer models. I subscribe to capital economics because they show their work and because they're willing to admit when they're wrong. They recently sent a piece titled, We Now Think the 10-Year Treasury Yield Will Rise Further. We now think they thought something different a few weeks ago. They changed their mind. Rates have gone beyond what they thought they would do this year. There were two things that caused them to change their mind. First, the $1.9 trillion fiscal package that was passed in the U.S. and how easily it passed. And second, the Federal Reserve's response to rising interest rates. They didn't seem overly concerned about them and didn't provide any indication that they were going to anchor long-term rates at a certain level. As a result, they revised up their forecast. They believe the 10-year Treasury bond will yield 2.25% by the end of 2021. That's about a half a percentage point above where it is today. 
And they believe by the end of 2022, rates could be at 2.5%. Those are not very high interest rates, higher than we were last August, but certainly consistent with an economy that's growing. When their forecast didn't play out, they made adjustments. They showed the work. They were humble about it. I like that about that firm. That's why I continue to pay for their institutional research. The second view is Ray Dalio. He's the founder of the hedge fund Bridgewater. His recent piece is titled, Why in the World Would You Own Bonds When Bond Markets Offer Ridiculously Low Yields? He points out that real returns, the returns for bonds after backing out inflation, are negative in many areas of the world. And so they're not a great storehouse of wealth because you're losing money after inflation. He's worried about the potential rotation out of U.S. bonds to Chinese bonds because most investors are underweight China bonds and overweight U.S. bonds relative to, let's say, the size of the U.S. economy compared to the Chinese economy. It's not easy to invest in Chinese bonds for non-Chinese investors. Institutional investment firms have to register as qualified foreign institutional investors or other programs that China has. I looked, I could only find two Chinese bond ETFs. One was based in the UK, the iShares China CNY bond ETF, CNYB. Its yield to maturity is 3.3%, duration 5.6 years. For U.S. investors, I found the VanEck Vectors China AMC China bond ETF, ticker is CBON. Its SEC yield is 2.9% and a duration of two and a half years. That one caused me to pause a little bit because the expense ratio right now was 0.5%, but the ETF has a 3% expense waiver for operating expenses that expires in September 2021. In other words, without that waiver, the expense ratio on this fund would be 3.5%. It is true that Chinese bonds have higher yields and potentially lower durations or interest rate sensitivity than U.S. bonds. Now, there's currency risk, there's tax risk. If you go through the prospectus of the VanEck China AMC bond ETF, there are a lot of risks there. But it is another option within the bond market. Dahlia was also worried about investors just exiting bonds in general because they're worried about interest rates. He writes, imagine what would happen if any or all of these reasons, the holders of these debt assets wanted to sell them. There's now over $75 trillion of U.S. debt assets of varying maturities. And there's about $16 trillion of U.S. Treasury bonds outstanding. He writes, I'm just a practical global macro investor focusing on the mechanics and its implications, trying to stay one step ahead of the crowd. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He says investors should have well-diversified portfolios of non-debt and non-dollar assets. That's one view. I agree. We should own non-dollar assets and have assets that aren't bonds. Hoytington Investment Management believes that investors should have long-term bonds. I discussed their views in detail in Plus Episode 336. This is the premium podcast episode for members of Money for the Rest Was Plus. This was a continuation of a discussion on the money supply growth in the U.S. Their view is there's a massive economic void and destruction of wealth from the pandemic, that households in the U.S. need to rebuild their savings. 
and that we're not going to see the big rebound in economic growth because investors will save instead of spend. Hoisington also believes that the stimulus package that was just passed, as well as the infrastructure package that is under consideration, will be a net negative for the economy. They believe that there is a negative fiscal multiplier, that when governments spend, that doesn't magnify economic growth. It actually detracts from economic growth. Third, they believe there's a debt overhang. There's too much debt and that investors will have to pay off that debt. And that will reduce spending and will put downward pressure on interest rates. Definitely a more bearish economic view, but bullish for bonds. Dahlia's view is bearish on bonds. And capital economics is sort of status quo. Interest rates will go up, but the economy will continue to improve and stocks will outperform bonds over the next five to 10 years. Given these disparate views, why own bonds? Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. My primary reason for holding bonds is to generate income, albeit not large amounts of it, but more importantly, to protect against capital losses, to hedge my more risky aspects of my portfolio, lower the overall risk, and to have capital to deploy when other opportunities arise. It's a safe place to store money and to pick up some yield. I like bonds because the returns are predictable. 
The returns of a bond funder ETF, if held for 7 to 10 years, will be its starting yield to maturity. That's the way the math works. To me, that's a very comfortable place to be, to know what the return will be. There are times when the yields are higher and we got much greater return. And now yields are low and the returns are not as good. And so I don't have as much in bonds that I did when expected returns and interest rates were higher. But bonds are less expensive to hedge or protect against stock market losses than buying options, put options. A put option gives the holder the right to sell a certain security at a certain price. Put options can be used to protect against stock market losses. If I buy a put option that's 5% below the current level of, let's say, the S&P 500, if the S&P 500 falls by more than 5% while that put option is still in force, then my losses are limited to 5%. Investors often want to buy these put options to protect against losses greater than 5% or 10 or 20% as a way to limit downside losses. But there's a cost. With put options, you have to pay a premium. In the same way, we pay premiums for insurance to protect against losses. But here's the thing. That premium paid is a performance drag. It lowers the overall return of the stock portfolio after backing out the premium. Another way to invest would be to just have less in stocks and more in bonds. There are three papers that I'll link to in the show notes that looked at the true cost of this hedging. The first was a study by Movement Capital. Their investment advisor went from 2007 to 2018. It was titled The True Cost of Hedging S&P Downside. They found over that period that investors that bought put options that were 20% out of the money, so 20% below the current level of the S&P, trying to protect against downside below that, had an annualized return of 4% compared to 7.1% for the Spider S&P 500 ETF. So the drag was 3%. A second paper, Brian Foltis of Butler University, titled Revisiting Covered Calls and Protective Puts. Protective puts is buying a put to protect against market losses. A covered call strategy is where you own the stock or the ETF, let's say the, the Spider SP500 ETF, and then sell call options to where you collect the premium, but you give up the upside on the stocks above a certain level, that level being the strike price at which the call option was sold. They found this strategy of buying monthly put options, protecting against losses greater than 5%, led to a 4% performance drag relative to the S&P 500. But more intriguing to me is consistently selling call options on the S&P 500 generated a return 5% greater than the S&P 500. And this data, this study went from 1993 to 2020. I've not discussed covered call strategies much on this podcast, but after looking at the study, I'm definitely going to take a closer look. The third study was by Ronnie Israelov. It was titled Pathetic Protection, the Elusive Benefits of Protective Puts. He found in the simulations that he did that portfolios protected with put options 
have worse peak-to-trough drawdown characteristics per unit of expected return than portfolios that just have lower stock exposure and have cash instead, which means investors can do better owning bonds combined with stocks than they can do investing in stocks and then buying protective puts. He writes, for example, I find that the strategy that invests 40% in equity and 60% in cash has delivered similar returns as the protected strategy, but with less than half the volatility and significantly improved peak-to-trough drawdowns. The challenge with a protective put strategy is what time frame do you protect against? Do you buy puts that go out for a year, which are the most expensive, or do you buy new puts every single month that expire within a month? Those are the least expensive puts. The author gives a hypothetical example of paying 1% for protection on the S&P 500 for losses greater than 5%. If the stock market fell just 5% in one month, then a new put was purchased, and then fell 5% the second month, that the investor that protected against put options would have lost 12% versus not having bought the puts where the decline would have been 10%. And this is called path dependence. Depends on which puts you buy. His study went from 1986 to 2016. He found using a strategy of buying puts that were 5% out of the money that there was a 3.3% performance drag. And a portfolio that was only 37% stocks and 63% bonds would have done just as well. Which means as investors, we can have more stock exposure and protect some of those losses with bonds and do better than trying to hedge using put options. It's the protection aspect that is, for me, the compelling reason to have bonds. Now, there's all types of bonds. We don't have to buy government bonds. We can use active managers that can structure a portfolio with a higher yield and less interest rate sensitivity than the overall bond market. What we should do as investors is decide, well, how much maximum drawdown risk can I take in my overall portfolio? The stock market, worst case, can fall 60% or more. If we're not going to be harmed by that, we're young, we're far from retirement, then we can have more in stocks, much more. But we can calibrate the maximum drawdown risk by reducing stocks and adding bonds to the portfolio. Once we're there, then we can seek other asset classes that have higher yields than bonds, but maybe similar or not much worse drawdown characteristics. We can diversify. Bonds can lose money. If we think about a bond ETF that has a duration of four years and it's yielding 2.5%, if interest rates went up 4% in a year, that bond fund could lose 16% before taking into account the interest income. Now, if rates went that high that quickly, I believe the stock market would sell off much more than the bond market. But there is a little more predictability of bonds if you're holding them for 7 to 10 years. Make those two decisions first. How much in stocks? What's the worst, the maximum drawdown I'm willing to accept? Complement it with bonds. And then seek to improve the bond portfolio or the protection aspect of your portfolio with other higher-yielding assets that have less drawdown risk than stocks. We can also have 
exposure outside of the dollar. We can include speculations like gold or Bitcoin or art. We can own real things. We can include rental real estate. But we don't have to worry so much about our investing. Don't think so long term. Think about it in shorter periods of time. What's going on now? How do I feel this year about my portfolio? Are there areas of the market I want to learn more about? Are there changes that I want to make gradually, incrementally? At Basecamp, they call the philosophy of work calm. It's not frantic, trying to figure out, trying to predict what's going to happen, building out elaborate plans. Just keep it simple. As you learn, as you become a better investor, worry less about it. And over the next six weeks, if there's an area you want to learn about, learn more about it. I'm going to spend some time exploring different covered call strategies. In our business, one of the things that we're doing is we finally found a way to provide an index to all the content on Money for the Rest of Us and Money for the Rest of Us Plus. That's in a format just like a book index. It's taken me years to figure out a way to do that. And we saw and heard about it on Paula Pants Afford Anything podcast. And I looked at their page and thought, that's a great idea. I reached out to them and they told me how they did it. Now we're going to implement that. That was a project we weren't even considering at the beginning of the year because we didn't know how to do that. But now it's a main area of focus. So to me, thinking in smaller chunks of time is just less stressful. Having an overriding goal is important, but the tactics and the projects can be adaptable as we grow and learn and adjust over time, both in our professional life, our personal life, as well as our investing. That's episode 337. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you'd like to learn more about investing, I have two ways I can help with that. First, you can sign up for my weekly Insider's Guide email list, and I'll email you the links and show notes to that week's episode, an essay on money, investing, and the economy. And if you sign up for the Insider's Guide email list, you'll get a free investment guide, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing a summary of the key points of my book by the same name. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. If you would like additional guidance on building out an institutional quality investment portfolio, managing your assets as you save and invest in retirement, you can get that help and guidance by becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. It's where you can access professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to manage your investments like a professional. These are the same tools I use to manage my investments, to monitor risk, to estimate expected returns for different asset classes. Plus membership includes model portfolio examples to help jumpstart your investing and much, much more. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.